Amen. So this is the brave crew. We won't let slush stop us, will we? Those three o'clockers, wimpy. I'm not going to say it to them, but I'm telling you. Uh, yeah, I, I lived in Minneapolis, St. Paul for like six years. This is really nothing. Um, but we were not dreaming, any of us, of a slushy Christmas, were we? Um, we were dreaming about something else. That's okay. Uh, Christmas will still happen. It's all going to be all right. My name is Dave. It's good to see you. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill. Merry Christmas. I'm glad you're with us. And this afternoon, I want to I wanna start with a question that's probably not on your mind. It's, it's probably not something you woke up today thinking about. And you might even wonder why I would bring it up on Christmas Eve. Here's the question. You ready? How big is the universe? How big is the universe? Do you know? Now, before, before we answer this question, let's talk for a minute about the reason we would ask it and specifically why we would ask it on Christmas Eve. Friends, this is an important question today because in the Bible, there are actually four accounts, four stories of Jesus' life, four different sort of narratives of, of who he is. And three of them begin by focusing on what we call the Christmas story. Three of them zoom in on his life, on, on the shepherds and wise men, on the barn in Bethlehem, and they take us down to the stable and to the manger, to the very moment when Jesus was born. But one gospel writer, a guy named John, he does something different. Instead of zooming in, John starts his gospel by zooming out. He pans the camera back from this moment through years and decades and centuries and millennia to before time began to the very edge of creation. You see, John starts his Christmas story by saying, to rightly understand the moment of Christmas, we first need to grasp the magnitude of Christmas. And so again, on this Christmas Eve, I ask you, do you know how big the universe is? A couple numbers for you numbers people. Scientists estimate that it is 93 billion light years across in diameter. That's 540 sextillion miles. Now, most of us don't have brains that can comprehend that. And so what I decided to do is I, I called a good friend of mine this week and I said, could you help our church understand and just begin to grasp the size of the universe? And he agreed to do it. So take a look at the screens. Since the universe is a big place, we can easily get lost. So we'll need signposts to give us a sense of scale. The acrobat's ring is one meter wide. The crowd is 10 times wider, 10 meters across, larger by one power of 10. Now, with every step, every ring, we travel 10 times farther from Venice, and our view of the universe is 10 times wider. The 100-meter ring surrounds St. Mark's, and 1,000 meters, one kilometer, the city center. 
As our speed increases, four steps, four powers of ten, reveal all the islands of Venice, the Adriatic Sea, and the mainland of northern Italy. Six steps take in Europe from central Germany across Italy to the Balkans. And soon we can see the entire planet, our home in space. Eight steps on our outward journey, eight powers of ten, and we pass the farthest reaches of human travel, the moon. If we visualize the past of the nine planets taking their orbits around the sun, at 13 steps from St. Mark's Square, the entire solar system comes into view. And with 15 steps, 15 pounds of tin, we can see that our sun is just another star. From here on, our voyage will be measured in light years, the distance light travels in an entire year. Only now do we fly past our nearest neighbor stars, almost five light years away. The same journey at the speed of today's spacecraft would last 100,000 years. As we cross the perpetual night, our voyage takes us up and out of our sun's neighborhood near the edge of a great pinwheel of stars. actually a spiral galaxy, and our own sun is just one of a hundred billion stars in it. At this immense scale, 23 powers of 10, each shining light we see is not a star, but an entire galaxy, composed of countless stars. Astronomers have discovered that the galaxies are flying away from one another. The universe is expanding. Our own galaxy and all the others form clusters and superclusters of stupendous size, hundreds of millions of light years across. And here, about 15 billion light years from Venice, we approach the outer limits of the visible universe. What lies beyond this cosmic horizon, we cannot see and do not know.
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Friends, do you know how big the universe is? John's Christmas story begins in this way as he reminds us that to rightly understand the moment of Christmas, we must grasp the magnitude of Christmas. And so long before Galileo or Copernicus or Hubble or Apollo or satellites or space shuttles, John takes us, his readers, on a journey billions of light years long and reminds us that beyond the farthest edges of the universe and before any of it existed, there was Jesus. In the beginning, our NIV translation says, was the word. In Greek, it's the word logos. In the beginning was the logos. It's where we get our word logic. And logos was a philosophical term describing by the Greeks the power behind the entire universe. It was the thing that put all of existence into the logical order that we see today. The logos was that which gave life direction and meaning. In other words, the Greek philosophers of the very first century were looking at the world around them and asking the very same questions that all of us still ask and wrestle with today. What is the meaning of all this? How did we get here? Why are we here? What are we living for? And what is life all about? And intuitively, they knew, as we all do, that there must be something behind it all, and they called that thing the Lagos. Now, here's what's interesting. By the end of the first century, by the time when John is writing his gospel, most Greek philosophers had determined that the Lagos was unknowable. They had sort of settled into this place of saying, maybe there just aren't any answers. Perhaps this world and this life is all that there really is. And so because of this, people were wrestling, people were struggling with the question, then how should we live? If there's, if there's no grander purpose, if there's no higher being, then what should my life look like? What should I be all about? And two primary schools of thought had emerged. The first was called the Epicureans. And the Epicureans said, well, since there's no answers out there, I mean, since we have no explanation as to why we exist, there's only one thing to do. Have a good time. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Do whatever you can to enjoy life, live for pleasure, party hard, and carpe diem because you only live once. The Epicureans were the original YOLO crew. And friends, I would argue this. Most of us, many of us, fall into Epicurean living today. 
Because we don't know God, because we don't understand the larger meaning of life, because the magnitude of the moment of Christmas has not really set into our hearts. And so what do we do? We just settle for the here and now. We just pour everything we have into this life, into pleasure and popularity and success and stuff. Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and do whatever you can to make sure this life you live is filled with happiness because it will be over soon. And, and I'll say this, sometimes that works. Sometimes that feels really good, doesn't it? But here's the problem with Epicurean living. It's fleeting. It's thin. It, it comes and goes, to quote Bilbo Baggins, it's like butter spread over too much bread. There's an emptiness to Epicurean living, and it never quite satisfies the longings of our hearts because deep in our souls, there is this constant nagging sense that we were meant to live for something more. And no matter how hard we try, we just can't shake it. Some of you will get a small glimpse of this feeling in the next week through what I call the Christmas crash. Have you had the Christmas crash? This is how it happens. You're looking so forward to Christmas break, to time away from work, to time away from school, to moments with family and friends and Christmas cookies and Christmas meals and Christmas presents, but soon it will all be over and there will be a crash. There will be this, this sadness in your soul, almost a depression even, the day before class begins. Epicurean living lives works sometimes but the pleasures of this world, hear me friends, will always eventually leave you wanting, empty, searching. That was the Epicureans. But there was another group, another first century life philosophy group in the first century in the Greco-Roman Empire. They were called the Stoics. And the Stoics, at least on the surface, had a more respectable, tempered, noble approach to life. The Stoics said, even though there are no answers out there, we must live as if there are. Even though there's not a grander purpose to life, even though there's not a knowable higher being or an objective right and wrong, we must live as if there is. We must be moral and kind and generous and good folk because if we're not, this world will become a terrible place. We don't have any answers, but let, well, let's live as if we do. And friends, we see this kind of living all over our world today as well, don't we? people who are passionate about what they see as good and just and right and true, even though they live with this plaguing idea that it's really all for naught because in the end, we're just cells and molecules and atoms and chemicals swirled together in a random moment of chance. I was talking with my daughter a few weeks ago. We were at breakfast and we are talking about Jesus and I was reading her the parable of the sower and I Asked her, are there ever times in your life when you, when you wrestle with doubt? The parable of the sower is where Jesus talks about faith and how it takes root in our lives. And he talks about how, how doubt wants to rob us of faith, rob us of life in him. And I said, do you, where do, you, do you ever wrestle with doubt? And my daughter, in just an honest moment, says, yeah, sometimes it's hard, Dad, to believe in Jesus. 
Sometimes it's hard to believe that there is a God who created all this. And I said, yeah, I get it. I agree. Sometimes faith is hard. And yet, and yet, isn't it equally as hard to put your faith in the idea that we were created out of nothing and by no one for no purpose? That the universe came from nowhere for no reason? You see, John writes his Christmas story to a world that is longing and yearning, and as the carol says, pining for something more. Pining for something more than our own made-up morality. Pining for something more than temporal moments of happiness that this life offers and then so cruelly snatches away. Long lay the world in sin and error Pining, John says, your soul, your life is pining for a logos, for a logic, for a reason, for a God who will come near and reveal himself. For a God who knows the value of your life. For a God who wants to offer meaning to your life. For a God who can give your life direction, the direction that your soul desires and was made for. This is why John says this, through him, he's talking about Jesus, the word, the logos, the baby born in Bethlehem. Through him, he says, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. None of it. Now, let me tell you why this matters to you. This is not just a random statement or fact that's sort of outside of you. This statement can and should have massive impact on how you think and feel and live. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Let me, let me tell you why this matters. Imagine with me for a minute that you are in a poetry class. And in this poetry class, there's a bunch of people sitting around discussing a particular poem and everyone's sort of sharing their thoughts and ideas and opinions on what this poem is really about. What does it mean? What is it really saying? And in the class, there are a lot of different ideas, a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different interpretations. And there's kind of a general consensus like, I have some good thoughts and you have some good thoughts and maybe none of us are right or maybe all of us are right a little bit but no one really knows. But then imagine this. Imagine that just at the end of that poetry class, as everyone's sitting around, in walks the author and joins the group. The author sits down and says, oh, I see that you're discussing my poem. I wrote that poem five years ago. Let me tell you what it means. You see, suddenly, in that moment, the debate is over. There is no more discussion needed. Why? Because the author has authority on her poem. This is why, by the way, the word authority comes from the word author. Because an author, a creator, is the one who knows a thing's true meaning and purpose. Friends, do you see where John is going with this? John is saying to you and me at Christmas, do not forget and always remember that the one who wrote you, the one who created you, the one through whom all things were made has come near, has come close to offer you a life of meaning and purpose and significance that you cannot find in anyone or anything else. 
He is the author of your life and of creation. He knows what it is meant for. Listen to this. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. A few years ago, there was an article in Popular Science about the power of light. And specifically, this article covered three things, three main things that would happen if the sun's light suddenly went out. If the sun was suddenly gone, what would happen here? What would happen on our planet and in our lives? First, they said the temperature would, of course, suddenly drop. By the end of one day, the average temperature around the globe would be zero degrees. By the end of one year, it would be minus 100. And it would finally stabilize and settle in at a cozy little negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the first thing that would happen. Second, photosynthesis and the production of oxygen would completely halt. This would essentially kill all plant life and all living things. And finally... Uh, and this is a fact that all of you know intuitively. Scientists say, and they could have just come to Oregon and we could have told them this one, you get so much vitamin A and D from the sun that the bones of most humans would get very, very, very brittle and they would, we would essentially just start crumbling. Now, Oregonians, we'd probably last the longest, wouldn't we? Our bones are used to a lack of vitamin D. But the point is this, light is powerful. Light is essential. There is no life without light. Friends, John is saying to you and me here, our souls, my soul, your soul, desperately needs the light that only God can offer. The light that has come into this world through the baby born in Bethlehem. The light has come through a baby. Now, speaking of babies, um, one was born this week. And, you know, anytime a baby's born around Christmas, I just... it. it it just sort of sticks out to me, isn't it? I mean, it's a bummer time to have a birthday, so we should pray for this kid. Um, like, a lifetime of, like, average birthday parties is headed your way. Good luck. But it's also exciting at Christmas time to have a brand new baby, isn't it? And some of you know the Hatch family. Abe and Jamie Hatch have gone here for years. Abe plays drums, drums for us on occasion. They have a little boy named Howie, but they just had a baby girl. Maisie... Lee Hatch, born Tuesday, December 20th at 1.38 p.m. Her name, Maisie, it means child of light. And I said, okay, she's definitely making the sermon on Christmas Eve. Child of light, heck yeah. She came into the world looking pretty cute, already listening to headphones. I'm not sure what she's rocking there. Maybe some, some Beatles or some Jay-Z or maybe just some Christmas, who knows. But when I saw her picture and her tiny little vulnerable body, all I could think was this. The God who was bigger than the universe. The God who was there before time began. The God who created you and me and everything we see came. Came all the way in, all the way down past comets and constellations stars and satellites, asteroids and atmospheres, moons and meteors around planets and black holes and galaxies across the cosmos to be with us, 
to relate to us, to understand us, and to remind us of this, we are not alone. We are not alone, and there is a light in this cold, dark world that will never, ever, ever go out. You see, the moment of Christmas, the moment of Christmas says that the God of the universe sees you, cares about you, loves you. The God of the universe, the God of it all, the God of uncomprehendable magnitude cares about me and you and us. Let me ask you today, friends, are you tired of Epicurean living? Are you tired of just settling for the fleeting pleasures of this life? Are you, are you, is there something deep in your soul that's pining for more than just morality for morality's sake? Are you fed up with the darkness that so often prevails on this planet? If you are, then here's the message of Christmas. There is a light. There's a hope. There's a peace and joy and love and a salvation that will never leave you and never let you down. Here's the call of Christmas. Here's the invitation. Fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices and let your soul feel the worth it has as one created by the God of heaven and earth, by the God of the entire universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen.